1: The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day.
0: This is Simon Rose and joining me today for The Bigger Picture is Mike Indian, political commentator, author of the Groucho Tendency blog. Uh, Mike, it's hard to know where to start, but I guess we're going to have to start with party gate and these (laughs) fixed penalty notices. Now, if I'm right in this, this is the first the first prime minister ever to actually be found guilty of criminal offence, presumably there have been others who've done things that they have not been caught for. But this is quite extraordinary.
1: So this this is a criminal sanction that, and the difference in this in law has been explained to me. So Boris Johnson hasn't been convicted or anything. Basically, he's been fined by the Metropolitan Police issued with what's called a fixed penalty notice in the latest round of uh, sanctions handed out for uh, abuses mm. of the lockdown rules. Uh, during 2020 into 21 for number 10 downing street and it's hard to underestimate the significance of this as well i I think if we if we it's certainly in my lifetime we have to go back to tony blair probably being interviewed under police caution about uh cash for honors Mm. uh, which was over 15 years ago now it's one of these things that seems like ancient history uh but there's, there's, it's very tricky to know how to approach this because what has essentially happened is that in this week, the two most senior members of the government, that's Boris Johnson and his chancellor, Rishi Sunak, have been handed, uh, as you said, sanctions by the police, uh, penalties, criminal penalties for breaking the laws that their government, the cabinet table that they sat around discussed and implemented uh, at the time they said to deal with coronavirus. If we get into the weeds of this and look at the the actual events themselves, they seem comparatively trivial. They are uh, relating to it's easy to discuss, you know, suitcases worth of alcohol brought into Downing Street. The prime minister, in in the case that he was fined for, was it's related to a a gathering that took place in the cabinet room to mark his birthday. Mm. But what I think, if you if you're going to understand this, particularly at a time. In which it could it could seem like a very trivial Westminster story, but in actual fact, I think this this is probably the biggest political test of Boris Johnson's career, and it comes after he's had this amazing PR coup, which we're going to be discussing later on in relation to his visit to uh, Kiev to meet with Vladimir Zelensky. But a prime minister who, in any normal circumstances, a prime minister being handed any sort of criminal sanction would most likely be grounds for resignation. We still have the Sue Gray report Mm -hmm. rumbling along in the background. And there's also an added dimension to this in that it also has the potential to upend a lot of the expectations about if Johnson were to go, who would succeed him? Because it comes at the end of a very bruising week for the Chancellor as well. Yes, yeah, who so, until
0: until the last few weeks presumably was felt to be the heir apparent.
1: Certainly, in the eyes of the comment the commentariat, mm-hmm. and I think in terms of a lot of the public, that the Nixon's profile had to succeed Boris Johnson but now again we handed this sanction it shows really in the responses actually why Boris Johnson is is Prime Minister in terms of his political abilities and then these 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 abilities I, I would say rather cynically described as those of self-preservation and of course we shouldn't escape the fact that the Prime Minister's wife has also received a fixed penalty notice as well so this is these are the three key residents of Downing Street, uh, one of whom, yes, is a private citizen, but does live in a, a public government property. Yes, it does have a garden. But let, let's be let's be honest here. The reason this is such a big deal is because it forms confirmation of everything that those of us who have been critical of Boris Johnson, not just before he became Prime Minister, but uh, since, that he has no real regard for fairness and integrity in his own country.
0: Yes, and surely to everybody, whether you're a government supporter or not, and whether you occasionally broke COVID rules or not, as I suspect many did, um, it's the one rule for them and different rules for everybody else that just smacks of being staggeringly unfair. I mean, what was the point of these convoluted rules? So complicated that I understand the CPS hasn't actually successfully managed to prosecute anybody under them, and yet, uh, in addition, what is perhaps a more serious offence is that surely Boris Johnson has been, well, to put it mildly, economical with the truth when talking about this in Parliament. It,
1: the, it, we, we should judge the Prime Minister not on the actual events themselves but on how he feels, as you say, how he feels the rules apply to him and how he responds to it as well. And I think the best example of how this has been... Uh, Judged and how the fallout could still damage him, and don't forget we're in the run-up to the biggest set of elections that's going to happen before the general election is yeah. expected in two years' time, and on the day we record this, we're actually 750 days out uh from the the next likely date of the 2024 hmm. election uh we mustn't forget Boris johnson can call it earlier or later now if he wishes they have repealed the fixed term
0: how does that you've got exact. a general election advent calendar already with oh I, I
1: i i count down i'm counting <laughs> down the days what can i say but so uh, the, the, there has been a government resignation there's not somebody who's anyone's going to have heard of but um lord david um uh walson a conservative uh Here and a justice minister in the Lords criticized what he said would be it would be inconsistent with the rule of law that conduct to pass with constitutional impunity. Effectively, what he's saying there is that it's not so much the Prime Minister broke the law, it's in fact he hasn't owned up to it effectively. He's 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 only effectively when the police have got him banged to rights, as it were handing in the, the fixed blunders, and don't forget there could be more to come as well he's actually yes. stood up and apologized and said i've paid the fine he,
0: he doesn't seem very good at apologizing does he i mean whether it's something to do with politics or possibly in his private life you just don't get the impression he, he thinks somehow being a bit sheepish and um coming out with a few well-chosen latin phrases he will just get away with things
1: look for, for those of us who are again it's very easy to be critical and to say this is this is a confirmation bias here about everything we know about Boris Johnson. So let's put that to one side Hmm. and just look at how he's responded to this. These are the facts. Initially, the prime minister denied any such gatherings had taken place. Then there's more and more information began to emerge. And I think we have to give full credit here to uh, the Daily Mirror's Pippa Crea and um, TV journalist, Paul Brand, who have really plowed this quite extensive furrow of information who works for ITV. Uh, in, in looking into this the, it, two months ago the prime minister was fighting for his political life he was it was only really the invasion of ukraine that bought him a reprieve and it has brought him some good headlines uh, he, many of his uh most staunch critics including the leaders of the scottish conservative party many backbench mps have climbed down if, if not fully endorsing him saying that even the labor party said now is not the time to change leadership but this story has been slumbering, it hasn't gone away. But mm. what we really lack is a clear litmus test of how it is going to be perceived by the public. And, mm. and if the Conservatives have a very poor performance in the local elections because of this, and there's also a by election probably coming up in Wakefield mm. as well, which we'll touch on later, Labour will undoubtedly make Boris Johnson's character a. a sticking point a talking point yes if if this sticks it's arguably going to be damaging to the conservative party in the long run but the thing is as well like so many leaders boris johnson's most obvious successor has also been damaged as well and don't forget plenty of people have said to me this week oh rishi Rishi sunak could resign boris johnson wouldn't care it would be damaging for Boris johnson if rishi sunak were to resign because he's he's already lost Mm. one chancellor In the the last two years, Sajid Javid quit in early 2020, as we remember, and Rishi Sunak has been by his side and shares as much culpability. In fact, he's largely responsible. Many people credit him with the relaxation of lockdown rules. And Mm. even despite the situation in Ukraine, two conservative MPs, Nigel Mills and Craig Whittaker, have broken cover to say that Boris Johnson should go. So the Ukraine shield is crumbling at this point I mean has he hasn't as, in the reprieve that he needs
0: as you say it's not that long ago we were talking about whether Boris Johnson <laughs> re- should resign I mean it's not it certainly is the first time we've talked about it and then every time you think well who on earth could replace him there aren't that many sort of impressive conservative politicians who've been at the top table I mean is it true as I sometimes read that he likes to surround himself with people who aren't particularly impressive
1: that's certainly been one of the things that's been conjectured about the cabinet uh, that he put together. The firstly, the one that was very ideologically pro-Brexit and then he pivoted away to a younger generation of politicians. What well, I think we have to judge is it. not so much on ability but on thirst for the top job. I mean, if, if you read the, the excellent books by Steve Richards including the prime ministers we never had, the fact that stopped people getting to Downing Street time and time again, particularly conservative politicians, is a lack of impetus for the top job. It's one of the main reasons why Ken Clark never made it. You know, Rab mm. Butler's another example. It will probably be the reason why if Rishi Sunak doesn't become prime minister. That he he probably lacks that degree of ruthlessness Boris Johnson has in absolute saves. But these are all very selfish qualities in the mm. prime minister. And at a time when don't forget when this is going on, the government was having its best period in the public opinion polls for ages. That the Boris Johnson was trying to strike this attitude we're all in this together. But he has shown timely, and this is something that I think that really should worry Boris Johnson's party colleagues and those people around him, because don't forget, we had waves of resignations from inside Downing Street. The Chief of Staff, Director of Communications, his longest-serving advisor quit, criticising a response Mm. that he gave to this as well. Time and again, Boris Johnson has shown himself to be lacking in loyalty, to even those closest to him as well. He could end up paying possibly up to six fines for six different events, that points to somebody who has time and again broken rules. Now, maybe you could understand if it was one fine, he'd wandered into it and he got out in front of it and said, actually, do you know what? My team worked very hard. They were considerate. I I fully support them in what they did. I'm sorry for it, but I'm going to back them. They were doing the best they could at the time. And we were working in a very Hmm. unique environment. It would not have gone down well in all quarters. But at least he would have held his hands up and owned it, as it were. Yes.
0: And then, and what about what about Sunak? Because even before the this fixed penalty notice, uh, things were not going terribly well from him. Um, um, I mean, certain people were saying that there were leaks about him coming from from number ten. Um, but he doesn't appear to be an incredibly adept politician. I mean, all that stuff about his wife and dundon status. I mean, surely he must have realised that that was something to be declared early on and explained. I mean, every country—I mean, every country I can think of—actually tries attracting non-doms, nun but for it to come out belatedly, as if somehow he would never thought of it, is rather strange for somebody who is in the second most senior um, position within government.
1: If you believe, so there are a few things we've found out about the chancellor in the last week that have undoubtedly been saved up for a rainy day. By possibly by Number Ten Downing Street. Ultimately, these appeared in the press. They weaken Sunak's position. They make him seem politically naive and less credible. This mm. includes him holding a, a U.S. green card until comparatively recently. His wife's non-dom status was another one. It's easy to be sympathetic to him by saying it's crude to go after his what his his wife. And I suspect Boris Johnson will probably have enjoyed yeah. getting Sunak back.
0: Yes. For yes.
1: Sunak's very cool support that Johnson he gave to the Prime Minister over the controversial remarks that were made about Sir Keir Starmer and Jimmy Savile that were ultimately untrue the the Chancellor's own position has always been a tenuous one because he occupies the job that gives him effectively the most power on the cabinet table after the Prime Minister some would argue that the Chancellor could be at times be even more influential than the Prime Minister as well he's also the, the he's also just had a very Uh, poorly judged spring statement in terms of his politics, his tax cut that came in. I think we just we might have discussed this at the time that that headline income tax rate that he put through for 2024 is just looks like naked political opportunism, showing that he can't do retail politics. But equally, you have to say that Sunak has been at the helm of some of the most impactful Treasury policies, economic policies and interventions that a Tory government has done, arguably since uh, Margaret Thatcher he has certainly left his mark even if he's only in the office for two years he will certainly go down as a very memorable chancellor for good or bad reasons because of him leading the economic response to COVID as well and then of course there's a fact that the Tories will ultimately want to look to somebody who will be unsullied by any connotation with if if Labour are able to do as they did in the 1990s and make allegations of uh, character integrity stick in the same way that they did with Sleaze and John Major's government, which works remarkably well. It's, it's very interesting that, that the Labour Party haven't had to work terribly hard to discredit the Conservatives, but the Conservatives have been doing a job, a, a good job of that <laughs> yes. all by themselves. Yes. Yeah, But we mustn't, we mustn't forget, though, that there are still plenty of people around the Cabinet table who are hungry for it. The Foreign Secretary Liz Truss is definitely up there. Jeremy Hunt would definitely love another run. Sajid Javid is another one. Uh, Somebody who's increasingly talked about among people I speak to is Ben Wallace, the defence secretary, who's widely seen as a safe pair of hands, and there's a theory during the rounds that I've heard that the Conservative Party could turn towards him. Ultimately, Boris Johnson remains a mercurial but divisive figure. As long as he keeps winning elections, and and if this doesn't translate into a a particularly... uh, drubbing in, mm. in a few weeks at the ballot box particularly in the local elections then i think he's probably safe but and we'll touch on this later the the wakefield by-election is probably going to be the most consequential one we've had in a very very long time and it's funny because i i work with the former mp for corby mm. and andy Salford, who stood in the by-election that at the same time had the same connotations for ed Miliband. it was a swing seat mm. that labor took off the tories and it transformed the mood of that parliament for a few years it put Ed bit in the position where people actually thought he could win and starmer needs that if starmer can win back the seat of wakefield if, if imran ahmed khan um the disgraced mp there who was uh, convicted this week for molesting a 15 year old boy in 2008 if he has to stand down. The Tories are defending a very slim majority there, and that's in Johnson's back garden. If, if that seat goes along with the defection of Christian Wakeford in Bury North, that's going to start making a lot of Tories very, very nervous, and it gives Labour hope that they can capture enough of these seats back, which mm-hmm. they could do with a five-six-point poll lead, to get to a point where the, uh, they're the largest party, and even perhaps turning that into a majority if they can make some headway. You know,
0: let's take a quick breather.
1: sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio.
0: This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Bigger Picture on Share Radio. I'm in conversation with Mike Indian, political commentator, author of the Graduate Tendency blog. Um, We're talking about the local elections coming up and it it had been for ages that no matter um, how much Uh, the Prime Minister would sort of blunder around that his poll ratings were still much higher than Keir Starmer's. But that's certainly no longer the, the case, is it? But though it sounds as though you suggest that's as much because of the Conservatives managing to balls things up than Keir Starmer actually doing anything splendid that's raising his popularity. Is it comparative or is Starmer actually finding a way to get across a message about why Labour might be a better party?
1: I think Keir Starmer's progress, he's been in the Labour leadership now for two years, and what a two years it's been. He's only really had space in the last 11 months or so to really uh, arguably make his own mark on the role, but he's also had a lot of unrivaled opportunities that were never afforded to Jeremy Corbyn. I'm thinking about the prime time broadcasts that he gave and, and on many occasions of course as well Labour votes were integral to passing many of the Covid measures particularly towards the end of 2021 when Boris Johnson's own parliamentary party were getting increasingly fractious and don't forget that's another factor that's going to be weighing on the Prime Minister as well is that he, his relationships with his back are still very very raw and they will never recover to the point of adulation where even though he won an election he, he's burnt a lot of that capital goodwill Labour's Mark, I would say that Kistama hasn't made his mark yet, unfortunately, for the wider country. And I say this not from a sense of political balance, but rather for the fact that we're approaching, we're into the 12th year now, the 13th year nearly of this Conservative government. And history shows us, if we look back, typically the post-war history, the three big big spells the Tories have had in office to date, which is, of course, um, 51 to 64, 79 to 97, and now 2010 to the present that the Tories benefit from actually having a time out of government and they they come back with a fresh invigorated approach and the longer any party's in government the more tired it mm-hmm. gets the more it runs out of it isn't and the more you end up with don't forget if Johnson wins re-election in 2024 or whenever the election is certainly in the next two three years he he will be in the fifth term of a Tory government that's had to deal with some pretty big issues. The war in Ukraine is just the latest in a long line of things that have happened from starting with the Greek financial crisis in 2010 and working their way through. Labour are also coming uh, from an incredibly low base point here. They, they The last time many of these council seats, particularly in metropolitan areas, were up for election. Labour didn't make the progress. People had hoped this was because Jeremy Corbyn was languishing in the second Mm -hmm. phase of his leadership. Theresa May was plodding on with her Brexit deal and Corbyn mania had subsided after the EU referendum. And Don't forget, May led the Tories for another year after that as well. And then Labour had that utter collapse Mm -hmm. in 2019. So the local elections, ultimately, all politics is local. And I think most of the people that do vote in local elections tend to be very well informed on local issues as well. But if Labour does perform well in these, it will give Starmer a boost, particularly if they pick up a lot of council seats. The best thing that could probably happen for Labour is that they are able to pick off one of the the big conservative councils, so what the media will, the measuring stick for the media will be if Starmer can pick up seats in Red Warriors, because, for example, councils in Wakefield are up for election too, so that will, and there's a by-election there coming up, as I mentioned, most likely if Imran Amir Khan has to stand down from his seat Mm. if he's convicted or subject to a recall petition. There's also a question of, is Starmer able to uh, see Labour revive in Scotland? As well. By revive, I mean overtake the Scottish Tories in second place because Douglas Ross has had to walk a very difficult line. Scottish Tory leader has had to walk a difficult line of late because he has been stuck between Boris Johnson, who is not an asset north of the border electorally, it, it, his appeal does not, his writ does not run. North of the border, really. He certainly, you, know, you, look, you look for the fact that some of his most prominent critics have been the last two Scottish Conservative leaders, mm. Ruth Davidson, now in the House of Lords, and Douglas Ross, have both called for him to resign. Uh, and Mr. Ross hasn't given him a full throat endorsement, even though he retracted his call to resign uh, after the war in Ukraine broke out. But if the Scottish stories are eclipsed by Labour moving into second place and Labour is able to retake Glasgow, for example, then there's going to be a, an interesting dynamic there, that gives Starmer a bit more momentum. And there's a thing that there's, there's an impression that an imp- if leaders are seen as successful, that impression tends to feed on itself. And leaders gain confidence from that as well. So Starmer needs a win. This is undoubtedly his best opportunity to turn that six to seven point poll lead mm-hmm. into a 10.1 consistently. It's arguably more. Firstly, by uh, making Boris Johnson wobble and then the Tories might panic and replace him but also by showing people that he actually can be seen as a winner and turn out all the by-elections that Labour have fought have largely been defensive ones I'm thinking of Batley and Spen for example I'm thinking of Erdington if Keir Starmer wins in Wakefield that is a massive deal that can completely transform Mm. how the Labour Party feels about itself and they're not in the greatest of states as it is as well but what it would do and bear in mind that they're clearly gearing up for an election for them because they've hired back the ex-head of fundraising that left in the uh, in the Corbyn period as well to get ready for the election. It will give them a bit more momentum and it will take the wind out of Johnson's sails. The Tories have been losing it for a while, but what Labour haven't managed to do yet, and this could all change in the next two to three months, particularly if the Prime Minister continues to weigh his party down, is the, the elections that happen in three weeks on the 5th of May and then in the for by-election, give Starmer a chance to overtake. But then he needs to go into the conference season with a very big and bold vision for the country. And if he puts himself, his, his theme of a contract, the British people, is on paper a very good one. He shouldn't try to be flash. He should try to be what he is, which is a man of integrity. However, no Labour leader in modern times has won an election without a degree of sparkle and charisma. And, of course, we're all thinking here about Tony Blair and Harold Wilson.
0: Um, Let's change topic.
1: Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio.
0: This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Bigger Picture on Share Radio. I'm in conversation with political commentator Mike Indy. Mike, let's turn then to um, Ukraine's our last topic. You mentioned earlier that just before being issued the fixed penalty notice, when Boris got this massive um, uh, and impressive visit to uh, Ukraine, to um, meet with Zelensky, um, which clearly (laughs) was rather wiped out, at least as far as public perceptions concerned, by um, the fixed penalty notice. But let's talk about what he did and and where we are with Ukraine. We haven't spoken for a few weeks, and um, things look a little different now than they did then.
1: Yes, and I I think, look, we we have to. It's always very tempting to view these sort of photo opportunities from a cynical domestic angle and, and of course the critics of the prime minister will say that his photo op his visit to ukraine following um the president of the european commission Erschel von der underline was intended to be a very cynical move to try and distract away from public opinion and, and as i've said before ukraine has definitely benefited the prime minister in the sense that he has distracted attention away from party gate made it seem trivial which in many ways of course a war on the eastern fringes of europe is and we can't compare the two cases of course as well and 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 for a western leader to 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 go to to kiev and stand alongside uh, uh, vladimir zelensky vladimir zelensky as as their sort of boris johnson and others have done and are doing shows that a degree of solidarity with the west but we are approaching a point now where on the on the on the eve of easter that we are hearing rumors of, of a renewed russian offensive in the east the longer this war goes on the more desperate vladimir putin is becoming to end it and it may just be that we end up in a protracted situation where russian troops occupy large chunks of the eastern part of the country and we end up with a with a situation where ukraine could be divided along the lines of a, of cyprus or have the protracted conflicts in areas like nagorno-karabakh in the balkans or Abkhazia, mm-hmm. South after setia in georgia the The headline stuff um that's happened is in the last sort of 24 hours of with it is, is is that the, the russian flagship of the black sea fleet has been uh, set on fire, and ammunition uh, was aboard. And the uh, Joe Biden has also uh, entering into what is now nearly, you know, we're nearing the six day mark of this war now. It's, it's it feels like it's been going on a lot longer that mm. in a way. And I'm kind of imagine how it's the people of Ukraine must be feeling about it. It's this horrific reality they have to endure. Um, Eight hundred million dollars in u.s military aid is coming over including artillery systems armored vehicles and helicopters as well uh in the meanwhile we've seen remarkable um a remarkable solidifying of western solidarity which i personally hope is a great advocate of multilateralism will encourage nations like america to look outwards again and i think it's to be honest this this war has been a if there if there is if there is at all any silver lining however faint and to the dark clouds that have engulfed that country and its people, is that organizations like NATO uh, are being now have a new appeal to them, and of course, this may also have some bearing on what's happening in France as well. With the because by the time we next speak, we'll be talking about probably the result of the French presidential yes. election whether Emmanuel Macron will win a second term, he, someone who's someone who has wrapped himself in the eve, but also his his campaign has been stunted by the the war. He only started campaigning three weeks ago because he's been doing shuttle diplomacy Mm. to try and bring about an end to that, given the the position that France has as one of the the, the main powers in Europe. Germany has pivoted as well. So we we have to begin to ask ourselves now, I think, this conflict feels we shouldn't ever accept this conflict as normal. I think one of the thing, mistakes that happened after Crimea, and I think this, this is something that is, is understandable, but is that the the annexation of that part of the country was treated as a, as a normal, we normalized it very quickly. And by this, yes. I mean Western nations, the European Union, NATO, America, the UK, countries that have clout and we, we, we allowed effectively, we sat on our hands for, for eight years And allowed Putin to annex Crimea and although Joe Biden's intervention a few weeks ago in which he said that Putin could not remain in power was seen as a gap it reflects that frustration that I suspect that many Western leaders are probably feeling and Joe Biden's less guarded moments as voiced there that what is the next step they can do yes you can send military aid yes you can go and stand alongside the leaders in Kiev for a few hours in a high security area and have a photo op as well, but in the end, it feels increasingly meaningless for those sort of opportunities to be done. And at some point, this conflict will hopefully pass. And the, I, I don't think it's over overly uh, exaggerating to say that it will shape our, our, our geopolitics for. Decades to come, certainly our relationship with Russia, and I think also how we view the world as well, and, and the, the importance of collective security, which has been, among many other things, increasingly undermined. But does it also mean that Western leaders should look to other forms of intervention? Vladimir Zelensky's repeatedly asked for things like a no fly zone mm. over that. That's It's too late for that now. But should western nations be doing more and of course that inevitably means should we commit troops or uh, should NATO put in a peacekeeping force into Ukraine to establish some sort of buffer zone should they try and call Vladimir Putin's bluff these are not easy questions to answer but I don't think at this point in time anything should be considered out of bounds bear in mind that we are dealing with a man ultimately at the top of this Vladimir Putin who has shown time and again, he is quite prepared to carry out some of the very worst forms of uh, international politics, including assassinations or attempted assassinations on foreign soil, poisoning his rivals, murdering journalists, and now sending thousands of his own country folk to die in a war in which they weren't ready for, they were under-equipped for, and is now dragging out with a considerable cost Mm. to both sides. Ultimately, Western nations, I've come to think increasingly need to do more quite what form that takes, I think will probably have a real bearing on whether the war in Ukraine becomes something that we just remember happened for a significant period in the first part of 2020, or becomes a or serves to redraw a significant part of the map of Eastern Europe and indeed the, the relationships between many of the key powers in this world.
0: Mike, um, food for thought. Thank you very much indeed. I've been in conversation with political commentator Mike Indian, author of the Groucho Tendency blog. Mike, I hope you'll be back with me again in a fortnight's time.
1: The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the
0: biggest economic and political stories of the day.